There was just this huge pressure and also this feeling, I'll be honest, that nobody cared. I felt like I accomplished something special and I also felt like I couldn't buy attention. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah M. Fisk. PJ Gardner has never met a talking animal, but that hasn't stopped her from writing about them. She's the author of the middle grade Horace and Bunwinkle series, and her next book, The Great Zudini, comes out in early 2024. She lives in Southern California with her husband and sons and their Boston Terriers, Rosie and Rocky. She also writes under the name PJ Schweitzer. So please welcome PJ to the show. Hello. Hey, great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about your journey to publication, and we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. So when did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from them before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? I came to writing later in life. I was an avid reader uh, my whole life, and I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. Like I had tried a little bit, but I wasn't good at it right off the bat. And I also had this sort of idea that if you didn't want to be a writer from childhood and hadn't self-identified as a writer from childhood, that you couldn't really become a writer in adulthood. For years, I just was like, no, I'm a reader. And it was funny, I was in a book group. And this one lady who was a writer, um, and part of this writing group was like, PJ, you're a writer. And I was like, get out of here. I am not. And then I think I was 41 at the time when I accidentally quit my job, which nobody believes you can do, but I managed to. I had done 12 years of customer service. And it was awful. And the last three years had just had, it was just it was bad. I was burnt out and I didn't know what to do with myself, but I thought, you know, maybe I do want to try writing. So I tried it on my own for a while and I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I thought of the lady who was a part of the writing group and I was like, you know what? I think maybe I'm going to join the writing group. It changed everything. Like we had we, uh, monthly meetings and there were lessons and there was like a conference and stuff like this. But I knew immediately because also we were kind of broke <laughs> and I thought, mm. I did not understand the industry, even <laughs> even with as much as I knew. And I thought I knew quite a bit. I did not understand. I knew immediately that I wanted to pursue traditional publishing because I knew I wanted to write for young readers. That's how I got started. And and like I said, I knew pretty much immediately that I wanted to make a living at it. All right. That's a perfect lead up to the next question. So once you decided to pursue it, how did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how to query, how to go about everything? Before I was a mom, before I did customer service for a pool company, before I was a writer, I went to graduate school to study art history. So I learned how to research. And there's this fabulous thing called Google. I really do, once again, have to give credit, though, to the the writing group I was a part of. There was so many things that were about publication. And there were small little like retreats where it was like, oh, here's someone who's a published author. And in fact, actually, it was April Lynn Pike came and and spoke. Mm -hmm. And she was brutal. And in fact, everyone in the room was like, like, all the people who were like thinking of indie publishing were like, oh, for sure, I'm indie now. And everyone who was thinking of traditionally publishing was like, in tears. I was energized because I was like, I like information like that. 
and it, it hit me at the right time. If I think maybe if I'd been in a different headspace, that would have been devastating. But I was in the right place to hear that it was going to be hard. And then I did a ton of Google. And I went to conferences that were like affordable and, and close to me where I could, you know, learn. So I started in 2015. So it was before Manuscript Wishlist and that. And I was able to find great resources even back then. I'm the queen of spreadsheets. So I was like, I will create a, you know, agent spreadsheet. You want to hear what I did? I'm so old school because I'm so old. I checked out from the library, the guide to literary agents. And then I, I went to the back to see who represented middle grade with my phone. I took photos of the list in the back and then I created a spreadsheet and I listed every single agency. And then I went to every agency's website and looked at every agent on their website to see who would be a fit. And then if they looked like they might be a fit, I Googled them to see if they had done any interviews. If I could figure out if we'd be a match or, you know, and sometimes it would be like, well, there's several agents, but you can only query one first. Mm -hmm. And I would go, well, she looks nice in that picture. Or <laughs> he seems like he would be, you know, I mean, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. It was actually Horace and Bunwinkle, but it was the original incarnation in which it was about grief. Horace's human had died. His, mm -hmm. his dad had died. And so it was about grief. And then there was a mystery. I queried 52 agents and I got only one request for a full and it was a pass. I was really heartbroken because I was so certain this was the book, you know? And so I, I set it aside with a heavy heart and I started something different, which was, I mean, entirely different. It was a very dark contemporary YA. I mean, it could not have been more different. That was the second book I wrote and it was the second one I queried, and it is the one where I found an agent. All right. Then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract? So I wrote this book that was deeply personal, very dark, but I thought beautifully written. And I started, you know, I wrote it and I queried it, and I wasn't getting a lot of, a, a lot of love on it. It was very dark. I did get one person who was kind of like, okay, these are the things I'm looking for. If you're interested, you could rework it and get it back to me. And I was like, by God, I will do this. So in like two months, I reworked it and I did all this and I sent it. And ultimately that agent passed mm -hmm. on it, which was hard, but she was very, all of it in the responses was, was personal. She had clearly read it, but it wasn't what she wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do at that point. I was like, I am kind of lost. It was in February, I want to say. They were doing, they don't do this anymore, but it was a contest called Pitch Madness. It was a Sunday. I promised myself I wasn't going to go on Twitter because it kept breaking my heart. Um, you know, and I, and you know, you always want to be happy for other people's success, but sometimes it's just a reminder of where you're not at. And, and I thought, don't do it. You're just going to feel bad. So of course I, I went on to Twitter. Uh, you know, of course I ignored my inner voice and did that. And I happened to see that the entry period for Pitch Madness was then you had till midnight and it was like, nine o'clock at night or something. I said to my husband, I was like, I don't know. What do you think? And he's like, do you have anything to lose? 
And I was like, excellent point, sir. (laughs) He needed like a 15 word or 30 word blurb. And then the first 250 words. So I did it. Then I was like, yeah, right. You're never going to hear. And then a week later, I think they announced it or something. It was like the longest week. (laughs) And and I'm just, I was so, uh, you know, I was like, it's not going to happen. And then it did. I was selected. I think they had something like 1,100 entries and I was one of 70 that was selected. Mm. It was very funny because I wound up being in the same group with uh, Namina Forna, who is the mm-hmm. New York Times bestselling author of The Gilded Ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in it with a different project, but we wound up becoming good friends through this group. Anyway, so then you had like a period of 10 days where it was like, okay, we're a team and we're going to read each other's first 10 pages and we're, your mentors are going to give you advice. And we're like, okay. And it was so exciting. And then it was like, okay, you, you did your work and then you, you put it up. And then there were three days where agents could look through and, mm-hmm. and make comments and select it, it asked for pages and stuff. Only we didn't get to see it. We just knew that they were doing it. Mm. And it was, I thought the week waiting to see if I got into the contest was long. <laughs> that week was the, those three days were so long. And I had convinced myself no one was going to want it because I wasn't doing very well with querying. So I assumed this isn't going to be any better. And I wound up getting 13 requests. Mm. And it was, I was like, uh, 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 yeah, I was so excited. So I sent off the the query letters, which is what I shared with you. Which is what you're going to read later. Okay. I only got two offers and one did not wind up going well. It wound up being weird. I, I will say, and in the end, I was, I was glad because it led me to the right agent. I signed with her. I think she offered on March 31st. And a friend pointed out to me later, she said, I don't know if you'll remember, but a year ago when you were querying your first project, you told me you were certain, you just felt in your gut that you would get an offer in March. And I was like, oh my God, I was off by a year, but yeah, (laughs) I I was really proud of myself. We went out with that project and it did not sell. Mm -hmm. And that broke my heart in about a million different ways. She kept telling me, you've got to write the next thing. So I worked on the next thing and it did not sell. And then I thought, you know what? I've got a great idea for a picture book. And it did not sell. Then I went back to Horace and Bunwinkle. I was desperate. Like after three projects that didn't sell, I was like, I don't know. Something's wrong. I was like, maybe I really am a fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I sent her that messy version of Horace and Bunwinkle. And she was like, PJ, I love these characters. Now you just need a plot. And it <laughs> hurt a little, you know, but, but ultimately she was right. And I went back and I actually was able to rewrite that book fairly quickly. It was hard, I think, to rewrite Horace because his whole character had been rooted in grief. So now I had to find a new, I had to find a new core to his personality. But once I did that, it was a blast. I wrote it and then I think we had an offer on it within three weeks. Mm. It just so happened, I think, that not usually do I have luck. I don't have bad luck either. I'm the sort of person that has no luck. I've literally gone to Vegas and played craps where (laughs) I've rolled seven times in a row and did nothing for anybody. I (sighs) tell people, I'm like, I don't have bad luck. I just don't have any luck. Mm. But this was a time where I think luck I did where timing was on my side, it was right around the time of the Kavanaugh hearings and everything mm-hmm. was very tumultuous. 
And I think the book wound up being like that lighthearted thing that you needed to distract you from, Mm -hmm. from what was going on. And I wound up with three offers on it. We sold it to Kristen Renz at Balzer and Bray. Nice. It is time for the first cue of the podcast. Can you read your query letter for us? Just a quick content warning for self-harm. If you want to skip that, please fast forward one minute in 20 seconds. Dear Ms. So-and-so, per your request on Pitch Madness, I'm submitting my young adult contemporary novel, The Cold Place, for your consideration. It is complete at 65,000 words. 15-year-old Sam Guerrero has a secret, a hollow spot inside himself he calls the cold place. He'll do anything to himself to get there, break his bones, cut his flesh, anything. He's safe in the cold place, safe from his abusive family, safe from the memories of a deadly fire that sent him to a mental hospital, safe from life. Then he meets Roberta, Doc Holliday, a seasoned therapist who challenges his idea of safety and shows him a path to healing. Now, Sam must choose, hide in icy numbness and remain institutionalized forever, or allow himself to thaw and invest in his life. But that means facing the fire and the accusation of arson that sent him to a secured facility in the first place. The Cold Place follows in the tradition of Girl in Pieces by Kathleen Glasgow and Impulse by Ellen Hopkins. I'm a member of SCBWI and American Night Writers Association. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Sincerely, PJ Schweitzer. All right. Thank you for sharing. How has your experience been since signing that first contract? Especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way. It was so thrilling. In fact, when my agent called to tell me about the offer, I think I immediately burst into tears and said, oh, thank Jesus, because I had begun to feel like a fool. We were broke. And I'm, I can't tell you how broke. And I, I kept thinking, this is dumb, dumb, dumb. You need to get a job. And I felt like I needed to stay the course. And I did. And this was the validation of that. So the other thing is my husband is just the most supportive person in the world. And he would do these just wonderful things. Like he bought diet Coke bottles, like little mini diet Coke bottles that you could personalize. And he put the names of my characters on them. (laughs) When we sold Horace and Bunwinkle and I signed the contract, we opened up the bottles and toasted with the diet Coke uh, (laughs) from them And it changed everything. It changed everything. Just as signing an agent changes everything. One of the hardest parts about being without an agent was that, that feeling that you're so alone in it Mm -hmm. and, and how much just having an agent feels like I'm not alone anymore. I have an advocate. Someone believes in me. And then selling something, you're like, okay, I'm not a fraud. This wasn't a mistake or, or foolish. And then getting the three book deal was huge. I was so excited. And for what I write, it was a very good, it was also a very good deal. You know, it gave me hope as I had not had before. Mm-hmm. But the frustrating thing is, first of all, it's two years. You have nothing else. And if you write middle grade, it's very hard to create a presence with middle grade. Mm-hmm like as a middle grade writer, because you don't appeal to your 
audience directly. Yeah. You're trying to appeal to like the gatekeepers, the teachers, librarians, parents, grandparents, right? Only you don't have a product. You're the product. And then everyone was like, well, you've got to be on Twitter and you've got to be on Instagram and you've got to be on these things. And I was like, to say what? <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm like, I'm charming, but I like, I'm not, I don't have that much to say, you know? And then nobody wanted to hear, the other thing is, nobody wants to hear what I'm interested in, which is like, I see pictures of animals and I imagine dumb things. Like there was this stupid picture of these like three raccoons and they were all, they all had their paws out to the side. And I was like, (laughs) and I posted this one time, I was like, a little known fact, raccoons love jazz hands. And I mean, nobody liked that. I thought it was hilarious. Um, I was like, I was like, I don't think I'm built for social media. I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think what I do, whatever. And there was this huge feeling of pressure to create an audience. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a product. And honestly, I I get very frustrated because I feel that like 90% of the advice for writers of, for young readers is geared towards YA. I'm like, that's great. That doesn't apply to middle grade. And then the the dynamics of YA dictates this stuff. And I'm like, that just doesn't, nobody's talking to middle grade authors about the fact that I'm like, chill out. There's nothing to do to freak out. Like, don't freak out about it. If you're writing like me, animal POV, it's really okay if you don't have a lot to say. And I just feel like I want to give middle grade authors permission to not freak out. You just aren't playing in the same game so yeah. that was frustrating. There was a, and there was just this huge pressure and also this feeling, I'll be honest, that nobody cared. I was like, I've accomplished, I felt like I accomplished something special. And I also felt like I couldn't buy attention. Mm-hmm. I will be honest, that feeling hasn't necessarily gone away. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I don't write literary. I write for younger middle grade. I write about dogs and pigs solving a mystery on a farm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, but I've also not to toot my own horn, but I've heard from a number of parents who said my reluctant reader loved this book. I just feel like you have to adjust your expectations to your age group, to your genre, and know that it's it's just going to be different for those groups. And, and to give yourself permission to not freak out, mm-hmm. which is so much easier said than done. I still freak out. So... <laughs> All right. It is time for our quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I'm a plotzer, a little bit of both. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Under. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Morning. When you're starting a new project, do you typically start with character, plot, concept, or something else first? Usually character. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Both. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I like noise, but it's got to not have words or mm-hmm. else I get, I start singing. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I'm a get it right person. And then I have to force myself past that to just get it down. What tools or software do you use to draft? Super old school. I use Microsoft Word or I handwrite. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Drafting, revising's the devil. <laughs> do you write in sequential order? Or do you hop around? Oh, I hop around. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I think you could probably tell that I'm an extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to talk about the second cue of the podcast. 
what, and you mentioned some of them already, but what were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And do you feel like they were realized or did you overcome them or like, how did they shake out? Well, what were the qualms? Is it okay to talk about the fact that I'm querying again? Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay. I will tell you that the qualms I had the first time I queried and the qualms I have now are the same, which is how do I get seen? There's that sense of being invisible. I'll tell you one of the big things that is so, so frustrating is always this gotcha feeling like, well, if you didn't do it right, it's not going to, they're not going to see it or I'm not going to look at it. And I want to be honest with you. Sometimes when you see agents do interviews, they're like, oh, I I just don't even bother with those. You're Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's, that's super awesome. Cause I spent a lot of time putting that together for you to be irritated that one thing wasn't right in it. And yet I understand they're getting like what, thousands sometimes of queries. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest qualms that was and is this round as well is just that sense that you're going to do the smallest thing wrong and be out of contention. Mm. Well, I can tell you this time around, I thought I was a little bit more impressive than I'm I'm turning out to be. (laughs) I I thought, oh, with this track record of of publication and having had an agent before and, and having a contract for more books even, I'm a good bet. The qualm is always like, is anybody ever going to want me? And you'd think, oh, having been through it once, you know, yeah, yes. But it it doesn't feel different this time. In fact, it feels, in fact, I would say that querying now is harder than it was when I started. Mm. It's just a hard thing. Rejection sucks. It just sucks. And I always liken it to boxing. You have a corner of people, like your team, but you're the one out there taking the hits, right? You're the one getting bloody and beat up. And you go back to the corner for a respite and everyone's like, yeah, you can do this, like this, this, this. You're like, that's great. You go out and take a few punches. I'm getting tired of getting my butt handed to me. You know, I always show them the clip from Rocky Balboa when he's talking to his son and he says, life isn't as about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep going. Mm. Great scene. I've never seen the movie. I've watched that clip a million times (laughs) because you are going to take a lot of hits. And the sad thing is it just does not change post getting an agent. So going on sub with editors, you take a hit, you publish, and now you're getting reviews and you take the hits. It's a tough industry. So this is the final cue of the podcast. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? I have a new idea for a story probably once a day, sometimes more. It is my gift, but it is also my curse because it turns out that when you have that many ideas, they clog the uh, production side of things. So I have a very hard time landing on a project because I've got so many of these fun ideas. But what winds up happening is I let a lot of things stew. Things have to sit for me for quite a while and then it'll reach that point where it's percolated and I'm like, oh, that idea is ready. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, whatever that may have been for you, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? There are a couple of answers to that. One, and I'm no longer consider myself a religious person, but I'm still a spiritual person. Mm. And even now at low times, this has been true for me all along. I've had 
a spiritual feeling that this was kind of a calling, that writing was the way that I could contribute to the world. And I still believe in that. And when I get really low, I look internally and I say, does that still feel true? Mm. And it does still. And that keeps me going. Having a circle of friends, you need the team. You need that team in your corner who can lift you up and, and say, no, you're brilliant. I know you don't feel it right now. Or no, this is the right thing. But I have to tell you, my husband is my number one hype man, my number one ally. He's done so many things over the years. And at my lowest points, he's come through with the thing. So the Diet Coke bottles, right? You know, like, look, Mm -hmm. when you sell those books, we're going to toast with this, right? One Christmas, in fact, it was the Christmas before I signed with my, my first agent. He bought me a coach bag. I had always wanted a coach bag. And I was like, it's a lot of money. What are you doing? But he, he gave it to me. And in the card that with it, he said, one day you're going to be traveling all over to do school visits, to do interviews, to do these things. And you're going to take this bag with you. And I, I know it. And that's why I'm buying this for you. Mm-hmm. And it was such a testimony to me of just his confidence in me. So there were times when, when I lacked that confidence that I relied on the confidence of others. Yeah. And then also I go back to Rocky Balboa. Watch this <laughs> and I promise you, like, oh, you're going to feel it. It feels powerful. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you might want to let listeners know about so they can avoid making the same mistakes? The first time around, my biggest mistake was thinking that my first book was good. But, (laughs) you know, like, here's the thing. I went back and saved that book and that wound up being the book that got me my first. Here's the thing. You just have to start somewhere. And the first book may be amazing and it may not. But you kind of don't know when you're doing it. So I don't know that I count that as a mistake as much as just kind of the process. This time around, I queried based on old data, um, like from before how things worked before the pandemic. And so I queried with a partial and also a a partial in a a category I haven't written before Mm. in an age group I haven't written before. And I think that that's working against me. One of the the biggest mistakes I think you can make is using old data. Be really hypervigilant about making sure you're looking at the trends now. I think it's always just the biggest mistake I made was that my expectations didn't match my behavior. I was taking big risks, but I was expecting the rewards from safe choices. Big risk, big reward, big risk, big failure. So you could get rewarded, but more often you fail and, you know, before you get that big reward. So I I think a lot of it's about expectations, um, staying current, probably don't query a partial as I have done, you know, live and learn. Yeah. Kind of similar question. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? It's just never going to look like you think it's going to look like. (laughs) And the truth is, No amount of external success fills that gap inside you. Being successful, the bar always moves. Success is always what someone else has. I just found out I made a state list and I was so excited. I also wish they had tagged me because it was like, (laughs) it started a year ago. And so they're about to vote on the book. And I'm like, there's some really good books. And I'm like, I don't expect to win, but I kind of would have been bragging for a year, (laughs) you know, if I had known. 
you have to find ways of being satisfied that are not about what's happening externally mm-hmm. because someone always has more than you. If it's not enough, it's never going to be enough, if that makes sense. And it's different from pushing yourself to try a harder story or a different whatever. But when when all your validation is external, you have no peace. I've done it. I'm Shoot, I still struggle with it. But I can tell you the one thing I would change, aside from the fact that I wish the publishers were a little more generous with everybody, including their staff, you have to find some kind of peace within yourself in this journey. Mm-hmm. It'll beat you up otherwise. Since Aquarian Letter that you read for us was a book that didn't end up getting published, before you go, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Horace and Bumwinkle series? Yes, I would love to tell you about it. It is uh, an early middle grade series. The first book is called, you know, coincidentally enough, Horace and Bunwinkle. <laughs> it is set on a farm called The Homestead. Horace is a dedicated suburbanite and his human moves him to this basically animal farm in the country and he just does not like it. In fact, he hates it because he's... Oh, the smells and everything. And he's a proud Boston Terrier. And so he believes very deeply in his New England roots. And he, he looks up to, we often refer to heroes of New England, like John F. Kennedy and John Adams and that sort of thing. And he quotes them frequently. And Bunwinkle is a free spirit. She is a Vietnamese potbelly piglet who is eternally a piglet. Uh, and I make sure to put at the end of the book that piglets do not stay piglets. Do not buy a piglet. <laughs> I think it's going to stay small because I do want to on any angry parent <laughs> letters from parents when, you know, the pig grows up and doesn't fit in your bedroom anymore. She's adventurous, sometimes thoughtless, often thoughtless. They are the perfect odd couple and they solve mysteries. The first one is about animals that are going missing in the neighborhood. And they watch this TV show about these two animals that investigate mysteries. So they decide to do it themselves. And their catchphrase is pet detectives investigate. Book two features a raccoon falsely accused. And book three is at a Renaissance festival. I have to tell you, the raccoon is possibly my favorite character in all of the series. <laughs> but I am very proud of I'm very proud of book one. I, I, I think the mystery in book one stands up against against anything out there. So mm-hmm. well, PJ, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story with everyone. Oh, you're welcome. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of PJ's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Sarah Nicholas. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That again is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.